Welcome everyone. Go ahead and stop that. Um, thank you everyone for joining us uh, for the Southern Branch Town Hall. It's Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm really excited to have everybody join us. Um, we got a kind of tight agenda for tonight and we want to keep this right at an hour. I'm going to give some branch updates. We'll go through any questions branch members might have uh, on this call. And then we're going to jump into an interview with Ed Krentz. Um, just again, my name is Michael Iannuzzi. I'm the Southern Branch Chair. Really excited to, to speak to you guys tonight. So we'll kick it off. I have a couple different things that I want to cover. Uh, we sent out an email and then there was, of course, a Facebook post that went out that kind of outlined all this, but I'll go through some of these updates. First is the Southern Branch Flourish Scholarship. Uh, this is a great scholarship out there that was created with the goal of developing a priority of uh, kind of educating branch soloists and bands in music theory, instrument setup, tuning, composition, and ensemble when it comes to tenor drumming, right? So we hope that with this scholarship, we're gonna raise the overall level of the midsection drumming in our region. And I think this is especially timely with the regrades that are coming up and all that other stuff. So uh, you can definitely check it out on southernbranch.org uh, backslash flourish, and you can check it out there. Um, there's also links on the Facebook uh, group page. So if you have any questions, feel free, you can ask us about it. We also have released a Southern Branch podcast. So we're constantly looking at ways to provide content to our members. Um, while on the go or at home. So for those that missed out last month, the branch has really incorporated a branch podcast to add with our town hall supplements. I know we've had a little break over the summer months with town hall guests and things like that, but this is really going to help provide information and conversations from guest speakers 
educational information, all that stuff to our members. So the first guest that we had was world-renowned bagpiper Andrew Douglas from Dojo University. It's a great, uh, great conversation that we have with him. Check it out, Southern Branch website, again, southernbranch.org, and you can find it in the podcast there. Uh, the 2021 Nickel Brown competition, um, congrats to the 10 grade one pipers who earned invitations. Um, I think this is also kind of timely because uh, Stuart Marshall is going to be representing uh, the Southern Branch, and Stuart is a student of Mr. Krentz here on the call. So it'll be nice to kind of talk about that a little bit. You can find out more about that contest at nickelbrown with a hyphen in between it.org. Also, another reminder about grading videos for bass and tenor. Um, all grading videos need to be submitted by November 1st, 2021 to the music board. Please, please, please don't wait until the last moment to complete your recording and submission. This takes a long time to go through and got to watch a lot of videos, got to write notes, got to get that back. And then ultimately it takes, it takes a good amount of time to really kind of think about the pool and, and the earlier you can get it in, the better. Um, any further grading information and playing requirements can be found on uspa.org. The USPA Winter Series online contest um, it's going to be announced, or it has been announced, that the first event of USPO Virtual Winter Series will be held this November. Registration is ongoing until November 12th. You can check out the latest USPA update for further details on the website, again, euspba.org. We're also building out an educational series. Uh, it's in addition to the website that we created for the Southern Branch and, and social media outreach. One of the initial projects um, was this educational series, and this project gives our members an opportunity to dive deeper into certain repertoire, maintenance items, how-to on different topics. Um, we just added a video from Vince Ayub. Uh, he's been working on a maintenance series for our members, and the first video that he, he uploaded was um, tying in a bag, which is pretty cool. There's not a lot of resources out there for that, so definitely feel free to check it out on our branch website or our YouTube channel at any time. And I think you might be able to hear one of my dogs drinking water here in the background, but uh, please ignore that. Um, a couple save the dates, Scotland County Highland Games, October 2nd, 2021. Um, entries for solos uh, are no longer open. This is going to be a huge contest. I know Bill and the gang have been working really, really hard to, to, to pull this one off with all the challenges of COVID. Um, I look forward to being there. I know a lot of other people are really excited about being at this Games. Um, if you see volunteers or any games organizers, make sure you thank them for the hard work because um, this is definitely a large event that they're trying to pull off and safety is their number one concern. Um, and you could definitely check out the Facebook page for the Scotland County Highland Games or the website. The Charleston Scottish Games is going to be on November 6th, just a reminder. And then the EUSPBA AGM uh, 2021 is going to be virtual. It's going to be on the 4th and 5th of December. Uh, more information is going to come out soon on this year's format and items. Um, so that is generally my update for all things Southern Branch and USPA. Um, any questions from anybody on the line, feel free to unmute or you can post your question in the comments. I'll give just a couple seconds for that. Going once, going twice. Mike. Mike. Yes, sir. Um, is there a... An update on the status of Stone Mountain. Is it is it still on or is it was it canceled or? I'm not completely sure. As far as I know, it's still on. I know that it was in a kind of invite only and there was only a certain number of bands. They had to really contain the number of people and participants there. But I'm unsure of that. I would definitely check out their website on any up to date information for for Stone Mountain. 
As far as I know, it's still on. Hey, Mike, they've sent out the um, information for the solos at this point this morning. So they are, as far as I know, doing solos and whatnot. And um, as far as we're concerned up in Nashville, they're still going ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Everything I've heard so far is that it's it's still on. I haven't heard anything about it being canceled yet. Um, so I know games are taking extreme precautions, right? Whether that's vaccination card information, temperature checks, negative COVID tests. I actually um, I attended a concert here in North Carolina and they had me show a vaccination card. They did a temperature check and anybody that showed up without a vaccination card uh, had to take uh, like a rapid test right there on the site. So I know these these festivals and organizations are going a long way to try and keep these things going. So uh, definitely um, I would follow any state or local guidelines and then guidelines from the games organizers themselves, but definitely take a look on the website to have update up-to-date information on that games. But as I know right now, and from what Daniel said, I think it's still on, so. Yeah, any other questions? Cool, all right, so we could jump in. Um, I'm really excited to, to interview Ed. I, I know I reached out to Ed uh, early on when we started to, to look at interviewing some speakers and it's great that we could finally lock it down and have a conversation with them. Um, I met Ed at, uh, well, obviously probably one of the games, but we spent a little bit of time together at the North American Academy of Piping and Drumming. And uh, I got to see Ed teach a little bit and shadow some stuff. And it was really, really interesting. But Ed Krentz has been a performer of the Highland Bagpipe for over 50, 50 years and has studied under pipe major Sandy Jones, James McIntosh, the late John McFadgen. Um, he's a panel adjudicator for the for PBA and currently teaches piping in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Um, that's where he started essentially the Lock Norman Pipe Band in 1996. Um, other notable things that I, I learned about Ed was that he was pipe major of the city of Washington pipe band from 1975 to 1978 and then 1980 to 1982. So a lot of experience under Ed's belt. Um, he's a lover of all things bagpipes, specifically Peabrock, and I'm really excited to, to have a conversation with him today. So Ed, welcome. I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, let's start this off. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you got started in piping. Like, how did it all begin? When, when was this? And, uh, you know, obviously don't want you to date yourself, but I'm, I'm interested to know kind of how it all got started. Okay. Well, um, uh, it really started when I was, uh, ninth grade in high school. Um, the school that I went to, uh, Robert E. Peary high school in uh, Rockville, Maryland, um, had a pipe band. It was maybe one of the only pipe bands in the state of Maryland, high school pipe bands. Anyway, um, and uh, some of my childhood friends that I grew up with just around the corner um, had joined the band a year or so ahead of me. Uh, and that included Bob Mead, uh, the late Bob Mead. Oh. And uh, yes, yes, we grew up together, just literally houses apart. Man. So um, uh, I, I'd always enjoyed the sound of the bagpipe. I had never played another instrument before. Uh, starting the pipe and um, it was an opportunity to have free lessons twice a week. Um, uh, I thought, well, I couldn't really pass this up. So I joined my friends uh, coming up to the school on Wednesday evenings and Saturday mornings. And um, my, my, first, my first evening there, actually, um, Sandy Jones was the instructor at the school uh, or he would come out twice a week and, and work with the band members. And so he, um, he spent about a minute 
staring at my fingers and not smiling as he was doing that and inspecting them and finally said, we'll give you a try. So, uh, so I, I acquired a, a practice trainer and actually I bought my first practice trainer from Bob Mead for the sum of $5 because Bob had moved on to drums and I, I was gonna ask did Bob yes. did Bob start on pipes or did he start yes, he on did. has he always played has he did he always play bass well uh I mean he he probably spent maybe half a year or so attempting to to get the the bagpipe uh practice channel under control but he um he saw the uh the writing on the wall I guess you would say and said you know I think I want to try the drums so and you know, it's was a tremendous benefit to all of us that, you know, he switched over to tenor and bass and just took it on wholeheartedly and became such a great player and instructor. Yeah. And for, for those of you that are unaware, Bob um, unfortunately passed away this past year from complications with COVID. Um, and I think, you know, my I, I remember seeing Bob when I came up to North Carolina to play with St. Andrews and uh, he would be judging contests. And I loved how, how passionate he was about, about the music. And then I showed up to the North American Academy of Piping and Drumming and he was my roommate. And uh, we spent many nights uh, just talking and enjoying, enjoying a drink and talking pipe bands and playing a little bit and jamming with Robert Mitchell and the rest of the gang. And, um, I, I miss him very, very much. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you do too, but that's crazy that you guys lived right down the street from each other and it started in school. Um, you know, typically when people get started in something when they're younger, I mean, you started in ninth grade, so freshman in high school, um, you were a little bit more mature than some, some younger folks that are getting started, but was there something that like sparked inside of you after you started or soon after you started that you were like, man, I really want to stick with this. Was it playing a gig? Was it competing? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, I wasn't a, 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 a kind of a natural player in the very beginning. It, it, I, it was a lot of hard work for me to, uh, to just learn basics. But, um, you know, I, it seemed like something that uh, I could do. And it was a musical instrument that I enjoyed playing. Uh, it gave me some satisfaction to do that. And, um, of course, I had uh, the camaraderie of the other people in the band and, you know, my friends that lived right around the corner from me. So, uh, um, I stuck with it, you know, for four years. Um, I was the pipe major of the band in my senior year. Um, and after that, you know, I went to the university, university of Maryland, um, kept playing, um, actually got involved at that point with, uh, a band called the Denny and Dunapace Pipe Band in Washington, D.C. And uh, at that time, there were several members in that band who were also members of the uh, uh, United States Air Force Pipe Band, of which Sandy Jones was pipe major. So um, I got a chance to be around some really good players, to hear some really good music, uh, to try and improve my playing a bit. Um, uh, after... After college, uh, I mean, I basically stuck with the, what was the Denny Denny Pace band at that point. And Sandy was trying to, to build it back into a band that was uh, that was going to be competitive on the circuit. And um, uh, I was kind of his pipe sergeant I would, for several years. 
uh, and Sandy, I would say in the the mid seventies, mid to late seventies decided at some point that it was time for him to step down. And, um, and the band actually appointed me as pipe major from there. How, how did you, how did you feel when that first happened? Uh, I was scared <laughs> because, uh, uh, I mean, we all in the band relied on Sandy's expertise a lot for, for the, the band's growth and its success. And, um, I didn't know at that time whether I really had the, the depth of knowledge, experience, uh, and uh, being able to handle uh, a group of, of very good musicians uh, in a good way to, uh, to be able to run this band. But um, everyone stuck with me, uh, and I really appreciated that. And um, the, the band went forward. Uh, I think one of the one of the highlights of the band was when we went to Canada, uh, either late seventies or early eighties, uh, several times during the course of the summer, Ontario, and played in several of the uh, the band contests in the grade two, I believe it was at that point. And uh, we uh, we actually won the season championship in grade two, and and uh, I remember. Uh, I believe it was a contest at came um, no, that wasn't Cambridge, but it was a, a contest in, in August. I remember the band went up and played, and uh, uh, we won the contest that day. And I think by winning it, we actually had won the season. It was a it was a tremendous day, tremendous weekend for the band. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of pictures. I know John Quigg and a lot of the other members in the band, uh, Bob Mitchell, and I can all can tell stories about that weekend. It was it was quite something. That's amazing. Um, you know, I think of my own feelings of success around certain games, winning and competing where you're like, you just go out there and you don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh my gosh, we did it. And that feeling is just electric. Right. Um, uh, was John, was John quick leading or was Tom key leading at that point? Uh, I, I, it, I believe it was Tom key that was leading at that point. Yes. Okay. Uh, John was one of the, one of the members in the, in the line and, um, yeah, uh, you know, we had a, we had an excellent drum corps. We really did. Uh, it was it was a pretty pretty much a match with um, the best chords that were up there in in Ontario at that point. No doubt about that. Um, there was a record I remember listening to a vinyl record when I was at St Andrews. We had this like listening room in the Scottish Heritage Center, still there, and uh, we were looking at drum drum uh, salutes to play. And there was a, a on that vinyl was salute to Kit Reynolds. Were you leading the band at that time? Yes. That, that number one, you guys were ripping through tunes like super fast. I couldn't tell if it was the vinyl like speed, if it needed to be adjusted, but you're, you're a hundred percent correct. When listening to that drum core play, like the, the speed that they played that salute at was so fast and uh, it was very, very clean too. So um, I remember Billy Gehringer and I were both sitting down listening to it and we're just like, this is insane how, how clean and how good this is. So you're totally, I mean, I completely agree with you, but um, that, that album was a big influence for me when thinking about composing and listening to music in general. So, so thinking a little bit about influences, right. Cause like, obviously that album was an influence for me. Um, what was some, some of your biggest influences? Obviously you had some great teachers, including Sandy and, and John McFadgen. And I'm interested in, uh, other influences that you had when you started really getting your teeth into piping and drumming. Well, 
Um, I would say, you know, I would I would go almost religiously up to Ontario, up to Toronto, where the indoor contest, and that was, used to be uh, like Easter weekend each year. And I would drive up through the, usually it was rain and snow, but I would go to compete. Uh, I think I was actually playing in the, uh, in the professionals at that point in the early 70s. Um, but more important, I would go to listen because we had, there were players such as, as Bill Livingston. Um, oh my gosh. Um, you know, there were a couple other good names. Bob Worrell was playing at that point. Um, some really good players who were getting instruction from uh, John Wilson, who was a big influence up there, um, from John Cairns, uh, uh, Seamus McNeil, John McFadgen, um, John McClellan were all coming over to that part of the hemisphere to teach on a regular basis. And those players were just soaking up that music. Well, I wanted to listen and see what was going on to see who was playing what and how they were playing it. So mm. a lot of time listening to the good players, see how, see how they set their instruments up, see how they approach their music, both in light music and in Peabrock. And I learned quite a bit from that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in the past, you know, 10, 10, 15 years of playing with competitive pipe bands, you know, one of the biggest things that I found to be really successful for players is like, put yourself around other good players, right? Yes. And especially, I mean, my first time going up to Canada or my first time going to Winter Storm, right? Like, you see players that like, we just don't see in the Southern branch, right? And sometimes you'll get people to come over, you know, uh, people from the program in Dunedin, but obviously those folks have gone and played with other great players that are up in that part of the world, you know? And uh, that's interesting. So do you think that your growth as a player, a teacher, a pipe major um, was expedited by going out to places and, and hearing those great players play that, that were playing just like their teachers that came over from the UK and Scotland and things like that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that's, that's something that every aspiring player out there, piper or drummer, you know, really should try and do more of go and listen to the good performance players playing, doing performances, uh, whether it's recitals or contests. Um, because you can learn so much. You really can. Um, it's not like you're paying for a lesson. You, you're just soaking up what the really good styles are out there. And um, you can learn from that. You can always learn from that. So I, I just recommend to everyone to try and do that more. Um, it, yes, I think it, it helped me quite a bit in terms of being a better player, uh, soloist, uh, certainly um, listening to the top bands. I remember going to the CNE, the Canadian National Exhibition in the early or in the mid 70s, uh, when all of these top grade num grade one bands from Scotland came over uh, to, to compete against the Canadians and the Americans uh, in Toronto. Um, and that was really the beginning of the, uh, the medley contest concept. So I was on the field in the CNE listening to these top bands come out there and play the first of their of these medleys. Uh, I was there the year that um, the Guelph Pipe Band beat 
all the top grade one bands in the Marshall Spain Reel. I was I was out there listening to it. I was I still have a, a uh, cassette recording of that, as a matter of fact. So, um, but any, anyway, you know, you learn from all that. Um, you get to hear what makes a really good band. If items like uh, unison playing, like playing with pulsing, like playing, you know, in terms of an ensemble basis, so that snare section, bass and tenor section and pipe section are all rhythmically locked in together throughout the entire course of the performance. You know, paying attention to those things uh, and, and, and knowing exactly what the levels are for your particular grade uh, in terms of those, those types of uh, aspects of performance to, to consider and striving to make sure that you're reaching and sometimes even going beyond the, the expected levels for that particular grade in those aspects. You know, thinking about that and kind of branching off what you're speaking of and just thinking about like, obviously like the birth of medleys, right. In the seventies, when you went up to Canada and you heard some of that and then medleys now, I mean, what are what are your thoughts when you, when you hear some of, you know, the great bands now executing on these beautiful medleys? I mean, even we started with city of Dunedin playing in Maxville in 2019 and just, you know, the, the harmonies, the break into that second jig where they all go back into unison and then beautifully spread apart and go back into harmonies. And then that, that, you know, speed up right out of the, the slow air. I mean, it's just like the, the boundaries are constantly being pushed, but um, what's your, what's your, what do you love about kind of like the progression of the medley right now, since we're on that topic? Okay, good. Um, well, I, I tell you, as I said, I, I was on the field when, these bands were playing their, their first iterations of medleys. And it was interesting because um, you know, a lot of times there was not complicated music. I mean, you were still playing small stress bays and reels and small marches sometimes and horn pipes and jigs. But uh, there were bands like the City of Toronto Pipe Band that came out, used uh, a ground or a variation from a P-Brock in their medley. That was absolutely unheard of at that time. And they pulled it off and pulled it off very, very well. Um, now you hear bands with, I would probably say, a, a higher quality of average player in the band than what we were hearing back there. Although there were really top-notch players back there in the 70s, too. And no slouches there. But I'd say today we've got some, some players in the bands that are really top-notch players. Uh, and, and they teach other players in the bands that reach those same levels so that you've got a quality of unison, you've got a quality of overall technique. Uh, and I'm talking about all three sections, you know, uh, pipe section, snare section, tenor and bass, that everyone is extremely, extremely well versed in what, in what they're doing. And, you know, the, the finished product, as we can hear, is just absolutely amazing. Um, I'm amazed sometimes that judges can actually uh, sort out the small things. I mean, we're talking about very small things between some really stellar performances and come up with a with a a result. And sometimes, I'm sure those judges, if they could give two or three first places, they would do that because it's so hard to nitpick sometimes. Just yeah, quality performances. 
Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, anybody that listens to the world pipe band championships, like you'll hear may like, if you can even hear little mistakes, you know, a trailing drone or something like that. But I mean, you see, see bands make those mistakes still and still win. It's, it's incredible. Think about um, the, the band size, right? So the first time you heard those medleys, right? Um, what was, what was the size of the band that was going out? Um, probably eight to a maximum of 12 pipers and snare snare line was probably four to six, no more than that. I would imagine. And then a tenor or two at the most with the bass. So, you know, you've got a band of probably 15 to 20 players out there on the field. And now what do we have? I mean, we have 16 to maybe to over 20 pipers snare yeah. of, of 10 uh, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, and three or four tenors and a bass and maybe two basses sometimes. So they're going out there with 35, almost 40 players. So, I mean, the band sizes is almost doubled. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and tenors, I mean, it's, it's not uncommon to see, you know, seven tenors in a line. Uh, it's not uncommon to see 11 snares because that was kind of the, the standard at some of the, the championships that I would see and I would count. And I'm like, there's five on each side of that lead drummer that puts them at 11. Like they're, they're, they're ripping. Right. And yes. Uh, yes. the unison is incredible, even with that, that size, but uh, not only that, but like the sound, right. How big that sound is. Uh, it's, it's very, very impressive. So, um, but it's interesting, right? Like how many bands would you say were in contests up in Canada when you saw them because they were smaller, I'd imagine that there were more right now we're kind of dwindling down, but the bands are huge. What do you think right. about that? Right. I think um, back in the 70s and, and 80s, when I was, you know, actively competing uh, with, with bands up and going to Toronto and the other contests up there, um, if there were five or six grade one bands, that, that was a good show. Uh, and, some, and sometimes there were more. Uh, and, and of course, we had, there was used to be... Uh, a couple of grade one pipe bands here in the, in the Eastern United States that would go up. Uh, one was uh, Jimmy Carr's band. Uh, um, and I forgot the name of the band right now, but uh, you know, it was a tremendous band. And, and that band went to Scotland. I know that and, and uh, took a prizes over there as a matter of fact. So, uh, you know, in the United States, there were no, there were some good, good quality bands here. Uh, but um, I, I think that, yes, there's been a, you know, a, a reduction in bands, in, in number of bands that are showing up in, in some of the upper grades. I think, I think it's actually expanding in some of the lower grades, though, uh, which actually could bode well for the future. If, if, those, if those lower grade bands, if some of them, you know, not all perhaps, but some of them can rise to the top and move up and move up and keep going and keep keep the drive going that's a very difficult thing to do uh as a band as i'm sure you know yeah um, you know to sustain sustain the drive sustain the 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 it initiative to uh to want to be better and better and to you know make your next performance even better than your last performance to sustain that over a number of years is is a difficult thing to do I honestly applaud the, every band that is able to do that. 
Yeah. I mean, you look at some of the programs. I mean, I remember growing up in Florida, I started playing when I was about 10, 11 years old in a band called the Lee County Pipes and Drums in Fort Myers, Florida, and then got involved with Harp and Thistle. But I remember the first time I went up uh, to Dunedin and looking at that program and it was like, just like one after the other. And this is when Sandy Keith was like, I think really, really in his prime, having multiple, multiple bands, right? Like keeping everybody in it and then just producing just people going up from elementary level to middle school band, to the high school band, to the community band, right? And it just like that machine was just, for me at 11 or 12 years old, like there was nowhere on earth I wanted to be more than that place just because I was so obsessed with piping and drumming. Um, but you know, being a couple hours away and my parents uh, being Italian and like, what are you doing? You know, they, they didn't, they were, they were supportive of it, but they, they didn't really, they're like, yeah, we're not moving to Tampa. Right. Um, and I was just so beat up over it because I wanted so badly to be a part of that program. But um, thinking about uh, the way things are kind of changing, right. Um, this like looming kind of ghost over our ability to go out and play. I mean, if you think about bagpipes, they're like a super spreader of COVID, right? Because we're blowing tons of pressure, you know, 35, 40 PSI worth of pressure. And we're just blowing air out. Um, you know, COVID spreads that way. Like, how do you think COVID has impacted the piping and drumming world? And like, what do you think is, is, is the new world that we're in when it comes to games and playing and things like that? Because this, and I know this is a challenging question. Well, you know, I think it—this it, uh, is kind of a sobering statement, but I think we're probably going to lose a percentage of players uh, simply because they haven't had that spark, that drive to keep going on their own because bands have had to had to not meet for over a year, and and. Uh, you know, the difficulties with trying to sustain something on your own, you know, if you're not a solo player, if you're just a band player, that's difficult. So I think we probably lost some percentage. And that's a shame. That really is. Uh, I suspect because of that, we're probably going to lose a few bands, unfortunately. Uh, now, whether the loss of some of those bands means that maybe some other bands pick up players and become larger and better bands, I, I would certainly hope so, because I would hope that everyone who has been able to maintain some level of playing can get back into things in some, in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think um, going forward, uh, I think everyone obviously has got to be careful, at least in the, in the, the now and today, uh, to be uh, especially careful what they do, in terms of uh, uh, social distancing, in terms of not, nece not necessarily having people pick up your bagpipe and play it, you know, uh, or, or maybe even some aspects of having someone tune your bagpipe, you know, being careful of that. In other words, thinking about what yeah. you're doing before you do it. Uh, we're, we're obviously in that sort of a situation right now uh, in this country. And, you know, in, in a lot of different uh, terms. Uh, but I, yeah. I think that, that too, I think there's going to be a chance for players, and I could talk about pipers right now. This is going a chance for pipers to become uh, better uh, instrumentalists and, and, and people who can tune their own instrument better 
you know, rather than relying on your pipe major or your instructor to tune your instrument for you from contest to contest, you know, it's, it's going to be more up to you as a player to, to do that. Now, there are lots of things out there that can help you. You've got lots of tuning meters. You've got apps that, that work as tuning meters. Um, you've got these two things right here that with a little education and a lot of listening to what really sounds correct and what's right, your ears can go a long way towards um, building a better instrument. Um, and that comes from experience. For sure. Now, I, I want to switch gears here in a minute, um, but... You know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I hear of bands that are struggling to put numbers out or they're missing, you know, one shy of the minimum to go out and compete. I mean, what are your thoughts around that? I know, I know my perspective is like, just put it out there. And when I talked to Michael Gray a couple months back when we had him on the town hall, he was like, look, just go out and play. Like, we haven't been able to play for so long. Just go out and do it. Like, even if it's not as good as you want it to be, like, just do it. Um, and I'm interested, interested in your thoughts. I'm sure you probably echo the same. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I would say go play. Um, if you're a player short. Just do it. Talk, yeah, just do it. Just do it. Because the benefits of everyone who is going to be there, you know, in terms of being able to play, to, to, to uh, experience, playing together again and to feel good about the performance uh, and to learn from it and to listen to other performances, hopefully good performances and learn from them. I mean, all of the, all the good things outweigh the bad for sure. So I would say by all means, go, go and play. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's switch gears. Cause I know we're, we're um, getting to the back half of, of the hour. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you coach people to prepare for competition, whether this is solo or band. And I think, um, if you could speak to, you know, talking to Stuart, right, to go into the Nickel Brown last year that he ended up winning and then winning the class this past year and then also going to Grandfather Mountain and winning, you know, uh, top Piper prizes. Like, I mean, how, how do you prepare for contests? Because I think this is a huge thing for both Pipers, drummers, and any musician that's going into competition. Okay, well, um, uh, you know, with Stuart, it was 1% me and 99% him, trust me. Um, the he did the work and, uh, you know, I applaud him. Um, you know, my job was really to kind of steer him in the right direction and keep him from uh, sliding off to one side or the other. Um, but a lot of that has to do with uh, listening to your instructor, uh, understanding when they, when they try to suggest um, adjustments that you need to make in your playing, whether it's, whether it's tempo or whether it's expression or execution, um, take those, take those uh, suggestions to heart, um, work on them, make those weak points into strong points. Um, you know, one of the most frustrating things for, a, I think, a, an instructor is to have a student that you work with them one or two weeks on a particular aspect that they're not quite getting. Um, and you think that you've got it, they've got it. So then you come back, and work on something else the next week. And then you have them play something and guess what? The first thing pops back up again. You know, it's kind of like whack-a-mole a little bit. So when you, when you try and fix something, get it fixed up here and then you get it fixed in here, but make sure it gets fixed in here. Otherwise, otherwise the fingers are gonna do what they're gonna do and they e fingers can easily slip back into old ways. 
So, you know, when you make an adjustment, try and make that a, a, a kind of a semi-permanent adjustment. Yeah. It's only going to make you a better player to do that. Yeah. When, you know, when I think about running a drum corps, um, it's almost like a checklist, right? Like it's like, okay, if we're playing an MSR, it's like, okay, in the March, you know, don't rush the second endings, make sure the flams are nice and open, make sure the buzz rolls are nice and tight and you're not playing louder than the person next to you. Right. Open up the single runs. Like there's that checklist that you go through in your mind and you're like, okay, I'm ready. Right. Um, how do you, how, how do you combat nerves? Yeah, that's a very difficult thing. Um, for me, I mean, I, I was a very nervous player in my early years, uh, competing. Um, but I kind of got over it. I think, um, just from, uh, really sheer numbers of, uh, performances that I played in and, um, saying, okay, I'm going to do my best and I'm not going to worry about it. And if I felt that I did my best, then I felt comfortable when I was out there. Uh, if I yeah. wasn't comfortable, then I knew I wasn't going to do it very well. So um, uh, it's, it's always better to feel positive about things than to feel negative about things. And I think if you can take a positive mindset when you go out to compete, I think you're going to do better. And I think some, a lot of, in a lot of instances, those nerves will leave you, leave you because you feel confident, you know that you can do this, and you, in fact, do well. Yeah, I, I think I was, I was listening to, I can't remember if this was a discussion that was had in person or if I was listening to maybe an episode of Pipeline. Um, they were talking to Bruce Gandy about how, or maybe it was his son, but they were talking about how you prepare for con competition and like work on the nerves and mentally the the feedback was it's just another performance right and uh you know we have performances where we play maybe at a pub or we play you know at, at some type of gathering that's not competition and it's like man we're so relaxed we're just having fun but then you know i know so many players that go out and compete and they just like they're so good but then they just kind of cripple under the pressure uh you know i think two things are, are just, it's just another performance and just go out there and play. And especially after COVID, right. Just get out there, yes. and play. especially drummers, yes. right. Just go out and play. And then two is like repetition. If you do it enough times, it becomes muscle memory and then you can really finesse it and start thinking more about it. But, um, you know, shifting gears again, um, you know, as a pipe major, when, especially for lower grade bands, it's always, uh, very attractive to play, aggressive tunes, right? Um, how would you recommend go about selecting tunes for maybe a grade five, grade four band that's just getting out there on the field? Because there's a huge group of them, especially going to Scotland County. Um, there's a lot of grade five, a lot of grade four. How would you go about selecting tunes for a band like that? Okay, for grade five and grade four. Um, and grade five has got a March medley. I mean, I would, I would, as a pipe major, I would assess what the the real level of the playing level of your at least your pipe section is and your drum section I would say um, and um, do not pick tunes that are too challenging do not pick tunes that involve a lot of uh, short dot cut cut dot combinations uh, where quarter note and eighth note eighth note combinations are much easier to play much easier to play in unison by all cores. 
um, I would say uh, uh, one good thing that I think pipe majors can do is, is not to be a slave to a Scots Guards book or other books of music in terms of, of technique, because you're probably gonna have players in your band that can't handle all that technique at the tempos that you want to play. So making small adjustments, taking out a doubling, just make it a single grace note or making it or having no grace notes on that particular note. So at least the player can hit the, the big note with everybody else without having to worry about all the technique. You can make players that may, it's, sometimes you feel pull the band down. You can bring those players up so that they lock in with everyone else. And that's what you want in terms of a, of a good, solid performing band. Everyone plays together in really good unison. Um, the technique will come later on, but adjusting technique sometimes in scores so that everyone can be comfortable when they, when they compete. I, I don't think that your competition music should be the hardest music that the band plays. I should, I should think that it might be some of the more simpler stuff because everyone will be confident then and everyone will, will lock in together and will play better out on the field. And I think that goes for the pipe section as well as snare section and tenor and bass. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you um, uh, some, of the, some of the nicest uh, ensemble performances that I've heard involved snare sections playing fairly simple compositions, but playing them absolutely together and locked right in with pipe sections and tenor and bass doing exactly the same thing. You know, it, it doesn't have to be tremendously tech, technical um, to be a winning score. I, there, there's a couple of really powerful things you just said there. I think uh, the one that really stuck with me is your competition set shouldn't be the most technical music or complicated music that you play, which is, I, I'm sure any band members that are listening to this, um, if they think about the competitive tunes that they play probably is the most complicated stuff that the band plays. Right. That's number one. Number two, I think, uh, less is more, um, like you're saying, uh, like simplify some of the movements and the pipe music, same thing with drumming. Right. Um, one of the most powerful things I heard John Quigg say was we were at the camp and, and he was talking about a three, four score that he played. And he's like, this score is not, um, special because of a, a blast or flurry of notes, but the, the lack of notes in some spaces that really makes the dynamic range for the piping stand out. Right. And, you know, I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, damn, he's right. Right. And it, it just gives a minute to like relax. And then the snares come back in. And of course you accompany with tenor and bass and it just makes such a great dynamic effect. Um, then just blasting through. And uh, I, I think you're totally right about that. So um, kind of piggybacking off of that, like what are some of the biggest mistakes you see happening with, with bands or in solos that like, just like keep happening that you're like, look, like if we could get rid of this, it'd be great. Um, and it would help people perform a little bit better. Okay. Um, well, things like starts um, where you've got early ease or overblown ease, or um, sometimes you know, you've got a double toning tenor or bass. Uh, those things are difficult to, uh, uh, to deal with. Uh, they, they don't enhance a, uh, an introduction, obviously. 
Um, but rehearsing uh, as a band, your introductions so that everyone is blowing the notes in tune and knowing how to blow those notes in tune and sustain them. Um, everyone that everyone in the at least in the pipe section practices starts so that they know the sweet spot on their bag to hit so that that bass drone doesn't double tone. And those, those places are there, trust me. Uh, I was working with a, a fellow uh, at the piping school this past summer and uh, he was having trouble with, with double tones and he was, he was blaming it on the reed. Well, it really wasn't the reed. It was his striking in. It was, he was hitting the wrong spot on the bag. And once we found the sweet spot where he could hit that bag and get the bass to go and it would start every time we fixed it without, without messing with the read. So but, you know, the, it, a lot of it is just practice and, and trial and error. But, you know, once you find the right combination, practicing that so that every start is good and every start is blown the same way. If you've got an entire pipe section focused on doing that, for five or 10 minutes at every band practice as a group, I think the results are going to show when you walk out on that field and you strike up to start your contest. Everyone, sure. whoa, what a great start. Yeah. And, and even, even if it's not on the field in competition, right? I think uh, as, as a general band, if you're on the march, if you're on a street parade, if you're in a pub, like it really does make a huge difference. And I was at general band practice this past week with wake and uh, we practice starts and stops and starts and stops and just making sure like as a band, you know, one of the biggest things and uh, you know, one of the more somber moments is like, we were a public safety band. We play funerals, we play uh, uh, memorials for a lot of the, the government organizations in North Carolina. And I'll tell you like, we cannot mess that up. Like we take that just as serious as we take conversation, uh, competition. So, I mean, just, you know, if you, if you treat it the same way every time and, and you practice like you're going to perform, I think it makes a huge difference. Um, before I open it up to everyone else for questions, um, biggest success that you feel that you've had in, in piping, this can be teaching, this can be playing. I know you alluded to one taking the band up to Canada and winning in grade two, but I'm interested in what, what's like the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I did go to Scotland uh, a couple of times to compete at some, some of the games over there. And uh, I think uh, the, uh, the contest that I played in that I remember most was uh, at Peabrook at uh, uh, Portree on the Isle of Skye. And uh, I was, it was my first year playing there. I'd, I'd been taking lessons from John McFadgen at the, North American Academy for maybe three or four years by that point. And um, uh, I was somewhere in the middle of the, of the contest uh, in terms of when I was to play. And um, so I was practicing and practicing and getting my instrument ready and getting it soaked in the same <laughs> uh, deal because uh, it's, it's damp over there, obviously. Um, the judges took a, a dinner break for about an hour, which was a great thing. I was first on after that dinner break. So I had semi-fresh judges, uh, at least, you know, they weren't hungry. <laughs> um, and I got up and played my 6-8 and I played, I remember the P-Rock was the Flame of Wrath. And um, 
I, I thought I played it well. Um, I got fairly good applause. Um, I guess that um, it was the last player on in that contest, John McDougall, who actually won, and I got second. So I guess in my mind, somewhere from my performance to the end, at least in one of those judges' minds, I was pretty far up. And, and I, I felt really good about that, that thought, so. That's huge. And it's, and it's wild that that stuck with you, you know, through all this time. And, um, you know, and it's even, it's even, it speaks more to you as a person too, that you didn't win, right? Like you, you did second. So you, I mean, you definitely beat out a lot in the competition, but that stands out as like one of the most proud moments that you have. And, um, you know, uh, maybe on your sheets, it explained kind of why, but, uh, you know, knowing in your mind that like, it's always stinks going first, uh, because then everyone else, you know, they kind of forget about you and from a judging perspective, but that is a really cool memory. Um, I really appreciate you going through this with me and, and, uh, being open, um, about all these questions that I was giving you, um, some, some, a little challenging, but I want to open it up to anybody that wants to ask a question, feel free to post a question in the chat, or you can, uh, just unmute and, and ask Ed a question. Um, if there aren't any questions we can wrap, but I'll, I'll keep this open just for a couple minutes. Uh, yeah, this is not really a question, but just a, just wanted to let you know, I've always been an admirer of your playing and, uh, we're probably about the same age, but, uh, uh, being from North Carolina in the late sixties, early seventies, there wasn't an opportunity to hear much good playing. And that's about the time the cross North school started up. So, uh, I, you know, I was in one of the middling level classes, but I always stayed afterwards to listen to you play and uh, Albert McMullen, Bob Mitchell, probably later on Mike Cusack. And, uh, and then I was also a great admirer of the, the Denny band, uh, not just the music they played, but uh, they were very much a 60, 70 band with their long hair and they had a sort of a violet <laughs> hue to the band. <laughs> uh, they wore plum uh, orchid colored shirts and uh, they were just the, the definition of cool. And, uh, <laughs> well, uh, a little history on those shirts. Uh, when the band was going up to Canada, we, we saw that the, the Guelph pipe band had started wearing, uh, instead of white shirts, which everybody else wore, they started wearing a, like a light tan shirt to go with their, their uh, muted uh uh, Scott Tartan. And so uh, it was actually, uh, I believe, Paula Glendening and uh, Bob Mead who came up with the idea that the band, our band could wear sort of a, a violet or, or a purple shirt. Um, and, and Bob actually had all of his groomsmen wear those shirts at his wedding. I remember that very distinctly. So um, that was kind of the start of the shirts. And then when we got to Canada, we, yeah, we took a bit of a ribbing from some people, but uh, um, you know, we, we, went out, we went out and we played well. So, uh, you know, it didn't matter what color shirts we wore. And I tell you what, John, I've always respected you 
as a player and as an organizer of that band. And I think you've done a tremendous, you did a tremendous job uh, with the NC State uh, band for so much, so many years, so many years. I've always uh, respected the band and the having the opportunity with, with my wife, Timmy, to play with the band a few years ago. That was exciting. It was very exciting. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed having you in the band. I Thank appreciate you. that. I wish it could have lasted a little longer, but uh, at least we had you for about a one season there. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Does anybody else have any, any questions or statements or remarks? Waiting to see if anybody comes off mute. I, I tell you, Mike, um, you know, you were asking about what things that I noticed that, that uh, bands maybe sometimes don't get quite right. Um, and I mentioned about intros, um, you know, the, the cutoffs at the ends to me as a, as a, as a, uh, uh ensemble judge, um, I'm always listening to whether all of the cores cut off at exact on exactly the same beat or offbeat. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Now, whether that's necessarily, um, intended uh, because of the scores, uh, I don't really know. But to me, I mean, if you're functioning as a group, you, you pretty much start together, you should pretty much stop together. And sometimes it's that's as simple as making sure that the pipe section is playing their last note to the point where they cut off exactly with the snares. And then making sure also that tenor and bass are right there with them. So everything ends at the, at the very same time. To me, that's a good cutoff. Yeah. And like when you think about piping too, I mean, especially in competition, like blowing through the end, right? Not only getting a clean cutoff, but also good intonation, right? Through the whole band, because if the pipes aren't quite blowing up to tone, it'll, it'll clash against the bass drum, you know, that's hitting a nice A or B flat with, with the bass drone, right? It can throw everything off. So I think you're totally right. Obviously, as you're coming to the end, right? Having a crisp, clean cutoff, um, you know, Bill, uh, SAU, we'd always say ABC, attack, blowing, cutoff, like focus on all of that. And uh, there were things for the drum corps as well that we focused on, but they were so critical because it was like table stakes for what we were doing, right? So sure. I think thinking about that is, is huge, but anyway. All right. We are at the hour. We are one minute over. Um, I really, really appreciate you hopping on, Ed. And uh, will we be seeing you at any of the games coming up? Will you be at Scotland County? I will be, yes. I'll oh. be so looking Great. forward. Great. Well, look forward to seeing you there and look forward to seeing everyone else out. Um, that'll be an awesome, awesome event. Make sure again to thank any of the event organizers if you see them and the volunteers for helping make this happen. But until um, next time, really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Have a good night.